Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. Let's get started. Uh, welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan. Rich is not here today. He's sick. And today I have Catherine McLean. She is an influencer and coach and mentor on Instagram. That's how I found her. And this is going, I can guarantee you, this is probably going to be one of the more interesting podcasts we've ever released because Catherine is in the same space that I am. And so this is kind of, I'm going to pick her brain as a practitioner, someone who's been doing this for 30 years, and we both like helping people. So I look forward to Catherine. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, I hope you don't mind if I dive right in. So you have a story and that's where I want to begin. I want to begin with your story because you're not just someone who's book smart. You're life smart. You've had experience. So why don't you give us a little bit of a setup on what you experienced at a childhood that you had to overcome? Yeah, sure. Yep. Let's go straight to the scene of the crime. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I call it too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so look, thank you for having me and I'm happy to, to start there. I think that, you know, the origin story for all of us really commences in our childhood. It commences particularly in those first mm-hmm. seven years when our mind, you know, is in that sort of theta state when we're downloading everything around us and we're starting to just become those little sponges that we need to be in order to start to assimilate into the environment around us. And I guess for me, the environment that I grew up in within my family, um, you know, there was family violence, there was parental substance abuse, mm-hmm. there was also a lot of love, there was a lot of mm-hmm. um, connection in a in an interesting way. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what we connected over was chaos. You know, we connected over oh, dysfunction. Wow. Yeah, and you know, we always seemed to, to get through to the other side and, you know, re, um, repair, I suppose, in, in some certain way that made us feel bonded again. But I guess as a child there was a lot of instability. There was a lot of um, fear-based parenting tactics, I guess, that were used. Um, and Were your parents mostly out of the home or in the home? Um, they were in the home. So my father was, um, you know, a successful businessman, so he was, you know, mm-hmm. working a lot. But my mother was was at home. She was she was with us. Oh, nice. Um, but I guess you know, with my parents, you know, I have a lot of love and compassion and respect for my parents. And yeah. I think as a teenager, I probably didn't show that at all. But um, as an adult, I certainly have worked worked through it. But as a you know, I guess what I can look back and reflect on now is my parents were you know wounded children in adult bodies, and they had children with the best of intentions, but they were living in survival mode you know, and they had unhealed trauma from their childhoods that they just hadn't really, in my opinion, had any awareness of, let alone the tools to manage and navigate. And so they were in constant state of dysregulation, you know, and there was a lot of, um, yeah, I suppose just emotional reaction to the smallest, simplest of things could set my mother off, for instance, and then, of course, there would be a cascading, you know, reaction from my father as well so there was just a lot of I guess from from a child's perspective a lot of um 
adaptations that needed to occur for my survival, which had me becoming quite hypervigilant, you know, becoming quite um, attuned to what was potentially coming next. And so I think it's where I learned some of my greatest skills in, in terms of being, you know, a counsellor and in terms of, of helping people is I'm really good at connecting in and, and attuning into what people are feeling because I needed to learn how to do that as a, as a young child in order to survive. Um, you know, we talk, we talk you, know about what's, you know, what's interesting is you mentioned at the beginning uh, sort of that first age of development. I never realized until recently, I, I had never learned this, but a child has no prefrontal cortex for the first part of its life. It's pure emotion. Right. It's pure intake. And there's no filtering. And that changed everything for me because it allowed me to understand why as a child I could handle so much because you don't judge it. It just experiences. And then you get to a point where you can understand, you go, oh, wow, this is a scary situation. When did you realize that it was a scary situation? Mm. Great question. Um, look, I was probably still under the age of 10 um, mm -hmm. when I started feeling the fear, you know, and really feeling the yeah. fear um, and yeah. starting to feel the, the, you know, that kind of juxtaposition between when you've got a caregiver that is the source of both love and fear, it's a very terrifying thing for a child. It's a very confusing thing for a child, you know, because you need to depend on your parent for your survival but if you need to also predict whether they're going to be safe when you have those bits for connection or not yeah mm -hmm. you, you have this sort of internal unrest that starts developing within your nervous system and so i guess yeah i probably did recognize it under that age of 10 that there was a lot of chaos and things going on in our home that just weren't yeah weren't comfortable really um for any of us and and i guess yeah i didn't really um you know, recognise, I guess, how much of a problem my father's drinking was um, on, you know, the dynamics within our family. But I don't want to say that that was the source of anything because I really do believe now that, you know, I've had my own struggles with addiction is that I really do feel that, you know, it, the, the substance use is just the mask. You know, it's not the actual root issue. It's a coping mechanism. Yeah, exactly. And, yes, of course, it yeah. inflames the problem, um, mm -hmm. but it's not the problem. It's an attempt at a solution to the problem. Well, I think it, it either helps you cope with it and just kind of like let it sit there or it helps you ignore it. Yeah. And I think for most people, if you ignore it long enough, it's going to kick you in the ass. You know, it's like it's negative energy and it needs to be released. Yeah. And it's like it'll keep festering and festering. Those are the things that get very destructive later. I think most people try it just to feel, okay, a sense of release. Mm. And then they get used to the release enough that they don't want to feel that feeling and then it becomes kind of dark so yeah 100 when did you realize when did you realize that you had a you from scary to oh i've got to start dealing with that was that later in life junior high high school college when did it sort mm -hmm. of begin to realize i've got something that i've got to deal with um i think what what probably was happening for me in that that sort of high school um period was the internalization of my mm -hmm. my you know my experiences had really started to take shape and it had morphed into a self-hatred it had morphed into mm -hmm. um, an intense sort of fear feeling of just loathing really 
um, which I didn't understand then, but I understand now is, you know, when children don't have an appropriate outlet for their anger to be released and expressed, they turn it on themselves, you know, they really do. And so that's what I started doing. And I started, um, yeah, really engaging in just a lot of self-loathing and, um, you know, I never went as far as self-harming, but I was certainly, you know, controlling my food intake and I was writing diary entries about how much I hated myself and I wanted to die and um, really sort of found myself to be very unattractive and all those sorts of things, you know, that start planting the seeds of doubt in, in a little girl's mind that she just doesn't belong. Um, and that's just because, again, I felt so unsafe in my environment and I didn't know how to express that and I didn't know that there was a way to to get relief around that. So it, it manifested internally in, in the same sort of um I created the same environment, you know, internally that matched up with what I was experiencing externally. And so, yeah, so I guess throughout high school, I continued on that sort of path. And then, you know, like a lot of children in Australia, we we start, you know, experimenting with drugs and alcohol and things like that in those sort of mid to teenage, you know, late to teenage years. And for me, I just found this sense of relief, you know, and that sense of ease and comfort when mm-hmm. I got got drunk the first time. You know, it was like, oh, wow, you know. And, and also by that point, I'd already formed a um, protection mechanism of I just didn't want to be seen, you know. So I had started withdrawing within myself because, I personally, I didn't like myself. And secondly, I was just mm-hmm. so afraid of if people really saw into me, they would reject me. And so mm. when I would drink, it was like those repressed parts of me, you know, those parts of me that I'd thought weren't lovable, it was like that had an outlet, you know, so I became confident. Mm-hmm. I became more self-assured. I became, um, you know, someone that just could be in, in the presence of others and not feel completely inadequate. Um, what was your drug so, of choice? Well, alcohol, 100% with okay. alcohol. But, of course, with, with drugs, I, I've done it all, really, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, speed, cocaine, um, ecstasy, they were the main ones methamphetamine as well um so yeah I really sort of took a journey with that and my brother as well um when we were still you know teenagers I would have been about 14 15 when his drug addiction um commenced and he was about 17 and that you know took him on a trajectory which was quite serious in terms of the the demise that he um fell into and he started you know moved into a life of crime and was in and out of jail and uh, unable to sort of, you know, have relationships that didn't result in aggression and violence and things like that. So he was really, you know, that the wounds of our childhood were really playing out in my brother's life, whereas I had sort of adopted such an internalisation of my experiences that I'd worn the mask, you know, I put the mask on and I had it, had it on pretty, you know, pretty tight. So... I became, you know, the person that would start sort of helping others, I guess, and would just show up in service of others. And I guess I had my life experience up until that point to really help me, but I'd also started, you know, I'd been to university. I went straight from school to university mm-hmm. and got my degree in um, human services, majoring in child and family studies and gone on and done other mm-hmm. further studies since then. But um, but ultimately, yeah, I just felt a, a, an affinity with helping others because it allowed me to stay off myself. You know, it allowed me to not have to look within and I could still get an outlet for, you know, understanding the human condition because I was so interested in that stuff anyway and understanding what makes people tick. But I think it was also in on some level it was also another way of me ensuring my safety 
um, which, you know, to put it really simply is, you know, if I can understand the human condition, mm-hmm. then I can get one step ahead of that person who potentially could hurt me. Um, so I had, a, yeah, a real um, deep dive into all the books, you know, read everything I could, um, went to so many different trainings. And I it was when I remember being about 25, I was at a training event and it was on understanding the neuro. Were you neuro- kind of seeking out help kind of generally or did you have a laser point? Like, were you yeah. kind of knowing something's not right? I need to find something, or was it I know what I'm looking for? Uh, what well, you, I mean, what was the right? Where were you at that point? So, probably around that age of 25, I may have already been in therapy once by that point. But around about the age of 25, I realized I was at a training event for work, and it was called Understanding the Neurobiology of Complex Trauma. And I saw the two um, brain scans of the um, infant yeah. with you know, complex trauma versus the one without. And Mm -hmm. just something in that moment just clicked, you know, it was like it just landed in my body and I felt it for the first time. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, because I had really not connected the dots, you know. I think Mm -hmm. I'd been in survival mode. Um, Near my family was a bit chaotic and dysfunctional, but I really hadn't connected the pieces in terms of what that meant for my brother and what that meant for me. And, yeah, so I think, you know, Throughout that that period, I actually went into a bit of a, a, a I don't know if we call it regression, but I entered the freeze response for the first time that I can recall. I really shut down. You know, I took some time off work. I didn't want to, but I couldn't even talk to my clients. I felt completely overwhelmed. Um, I just I felt like my whole body was integrating. You know, for the first time that that knowledge that I had lived through significant trauma. Um, because I blocked it, you know, I'd been blocking it out and I hadn't been really addressing it. So, um, yeah, so I think by that point I'd, I'd, as I say, I'd been into therapy already and that was more therapy because of the self-hatred because I just I couldn't quite seem to navigate like just conversations, you know, like a conversation with a person would bring so much terror up inside of me and that's why I How did you interpret that? How did you interpret that back then when you Uh, you had that thought? Something, something was fundamentally flawed with me, you know, that I was um, useless. So you inwardly you know, directed it back at yourself. 100%. 100%. That's exactly what I did too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's what, yeah, it's what we do do, I think. It's, um, you know, I sort of understand it more in, in a, from a concept of the ego as well now mm-hmm. and how, you know, the ego is formed to protect us from our childhood wounds. And because I was so dissociated from my body, I wasn't in touch with my emotions, the ego was really running the show. You know, it was keeping me from having to connect into any of that. And But because the ego is such an internalisation and, and such an I, you know, it's I, self, me, everything's I, self, me, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I could never look at anyone else and see that potentially other people were going through similar things or that maybe there was, you know, if there was something off in a conversation, it was all, always in my mind because of something I'd said or done. Um, yeah, so I think I was just very consumed and yeah, very kind of gripped, I guess, in that self-centered fear. Um, but as I say, yeah, my, my drinking, I guess, it became such a crutch, you know, because it really did give me that sense of relief so that I could actually just get through conversations and I could go to social events and I could just be, you know, present enough to not have to hear that voice inside of me saying, you're an idiot and no one wants to talk to you or whatever. Um, did you like that person better? The drinking person? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I was a lot I, I, because, as I say, that voice calmed down, you know, that voice kind mm-hmm. of got, it just went away. Um, so I was able to be with myself, which mm-hmm. is insane because really I wasn't there, you know. Okay, I want you to stop for a second yeah. and unpack that because I think that's what a lot of people are seeking is permission to be okay with yourself, mm. you know, in that space. So unpack that for me, what you mean by that. Well, back when I was drinking, you mean, in terms of the, yeah, with myself. Of, of being, when you got drunk, you were able to be with yourself. What, yeah. what was that like in terms of, because I think that's what a lot of people don't understand about addiction is there's a lot of good things that happen in addiction. You experience a lot of positive things and yeah. one of those is you could see yourself. Yeah. And th- for me, that was uh, sort of a, a moment that I realized, okay, is there something more valuable here that I'm aware of? Yeah. When, when was that moment for you? Well, I think, you know, ultimately it, it allowed me to experience connection. You know, I was mm-hmm. always seeking connection and I couldn't, I couldn't achieve connection without alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah because the noise was so loud, you know, um, the voice in terms of the, the, the self-loathing. So, um, the self-doubt and the criticism. So I guess, you know, as I say, like coming into a space of being under the influence of alcohol and even just the first couple of drinks, you know, when you're not inebriated, but you just, the edges come off enough that you're Mm -hmm. able just to be in the presence of what's right in front of you without worrying about what you said five minutes ago or mm-hmm. worrying about what you need to say in the future. Um, <laughs> and you just, it, it felt freeing to be really honest. I, you know, and it's fascinating because it's such a, the irony, you know, is that I was actually a prisoner, but I felt free. <laughs> I felt free when I would drink, you know, it was the only time I felt free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was how I was able to be, I guess, to be with myself and, but it's again, it's that it's that um, interesting flip of the coin because we say, you know, it was how I could be with myself, but at the same time, I wasn't present with myself. You know, I wasn't right. truly in my exactly. in my soul's yeah. essence. I was actually floating yes. on some other spaceship somewhere. Um, yeah. So, but it was enough to give me the reprieve to stay in the world in some ways. You know, like let's yeah. be frank, for a lot of people, it, it is like it's it's life and death. Sometimes, you know, for them, it's about if I want to be alive, I've got to use this substance. That's how they perceive it. You know, and that's the reality of it. So it's a very um, sad state of affairs for any of us to get into. And I think you know, for me, it, it started out as being a coping mechanism, but also I got a lot of enjoyment out of it. I felt mm-hmm. a lot of connection from doing it. Um, and it also became a habit, you know, in the sense that everybody else was doing it. It was not like mm-hmm. I was sitting by myself drinking at that point anyway. Um, and it was very, yeah, very normalised in our culture. And binge drinking, is, I guess, as well, has its um, has its effects. It takes its toll, I believe, on on you if you do it consistently. And I did it every oh, yeah. single weekend. Yeah, I did it every single week. I've, I've looked back on this. Over the 22 years that I was drinking, I had one weekend where I didn't drink in 22 years, you know, and, and, and Did it that wasn't, surprise you? not really, <laughs> because I knew, that, you know, <laughs> I knew that it was, um, that it was, that's the reality of it. But um, I guess I'd convinced myself that it wasn't an issue because there, you know, some of those weekends I wasn't yeah. drunk. It was just that I might've rewarded myself on a Sunday night with a glass of wine at dinner, you know, 
And that's how I used to convince myself there was no problem is because I could say, I've, I've just had one and I stopped. Um, Because I had the perception in my mind is that, you know, to be an alcoholic, you needed to be drinking out of a brown paper bag, you need to be homeless and you need to have lost everything. And that never happened to me. That wasn't my story. Um, Because I had the mask on so tight and because I got so good at, um, you know, presenting a certain way and also my my job, like, you know, I I was managing multiple programs in child protection and in, you know, post-adoption counselling services and, you know, I had a lot going on in my profession that would make you think this girl's got her life all together, you know. Um, but behind the scenes, there was not, that was not what was happening. I was living a double life, mm-hmm. you know, and that started eating away at me because in the working space, you know, I'd be processing referrals, you know, with families who had drug and alcohol issues and, you know, domestic violence and things that were kind of happening for them. And then I'd be kind of finishing work and, well, sometimes I wasn't even waiting to finish work. I was drinking because I was at home, you know, I'd be drinking mm-hmm. whilst working, you know. So there was those things happening at the end there where I was like, this is not okay. You know, this mask that I've been wearing for so long is, is actually hindering me from just being honest and telling the truth that I've got a really big problem. And, yeah, the, the for me it was COVID that led me, you know, it led me into the the... I had the ability then to drink from home, I guess, because I was working from home. Mm. So, so I had the ability, yeah, to, to drink when I was um, working. And so, yeah, that was the wake-up call I probably needed was to be like, okay, I'm now drinking, you know, four or five bottles at night of wine. I'm drinking every Bottles? You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's quite a lot. Yeah. And, it, you know. No, I'm, I'm trying to regulate insurance. You had a good tolerance at that point. Yeah. Oh, 100%, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Is that and, common in the... Uh, Australian culture to have a high tolerance. Uh, oh, look, I'd say so in many ways. Yeah, we are a culture that that um, you know that does like a drink. Um, mm-hmm. But I think you know I'm meeting more and more people these days that that don't drink like that. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, like mm-hmm. when your reality changes, your external you know reality does too. And for, yeah, for many years I never knew those people that didn't drink the way I drank. I only knew people that would drink to blackout, you know, and would drink. We'd drink for days, you know what I mean? We wouldn't just start mm-hmm. on a Friday and finish <laughs> You just keep drinking, day. wake up, have breakfast with a totally. Bloody Mary and totally. drink all afternoon. I live yeah. on a water community and uh-huh. everybody drinks here. So, yeah, it, yeah I understand that. It's uh, yeah. it, it's when it's fun and it's a culture of where you live, it's really easy to do. Yeah, it is. It is. But thankfully, you know, that, that period of um, of – you know, COVID when I started, you know, drinking a lot more and drinking alone a lot more, um, it led me to a rock bottom basically. And I guess mm-hmm. it was a relationship as well that it took me there. And I started experiencing, um, I was, it was like I was observing myself, you know, like looking down on myself, making these decisions and going, mm-hmm. what on earth are you doing? You know, and um yeah, I just started to become even more and more uncomfortable in my own skin. And I started realizing that the relief that I had been seeking just wasn't there anymore. Alcohol was hmm. not giving me the relief. It just was, it was actually inflaming this wound, you know, this this kind of wound that it just all of a sudden felt like it had just been set on fire. Um, mm-hmm. And I just realized like, I can't drink anymore, you know? I just physically can't do it. And do you remember terrible. where you were? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a yeah, there was um, 
there was a couple of lead-ins to it, but, um, you know, I had a, an, a, a, yeah, my brother basically has been sober for six years, so he got sober first. Um, and when I had found myself into, yeah, a bit of a dark place, I was away for the weekend with friends and I'd been up still, you know, they'd gone to bed and it must have been, you know, kind of 10 or 11 in the morning and I just, something came over me, you know, and this is where I do believe divine intervention steps in, you know, and it's we're no longer making decisions from our sound sound mind um we're actually something greater is at play and i'd known for some time that there is something greater for me i just was terrified of what that looked like and i feel like in, in that moment something stepped in and it, it got me on the phone texting my brother saying i'm ready you know i'm, I'm ready now and i need help um and it did take a few days to get me to, to actually let go um, because I think, you know, right before, you know, you jump off that ledge, it, yeah, it, it kicked up. I, I, the fear really kicked in and I, I held on again, you know. I, I really got into the resistance of it again. Um, but ultimately I did surrender to it and I do believe that I had, you know, divine intervention and I've had support, you know, from the other side. Um and I did hear a voice, you know, a voice that the very final night that said, you're not alone and you've never been alone. Um, and that's when it really was dawning on me that this whole thing that I'd been doing for all those years was because I just felt so alone. And, you know, I... Did it surprise you to hear that voice? Because I think a lot of people have those types of experiences and we don't talk about them very much. Yeah. Did it affect you or was it a wake up call? What was it? It was, it was just, again, it was that sense of like relief almost. It was a sense of like yeah. calm, you know, calmness and comfort um, mm. because I've always had, you know, strong spiritual beliefs and I've, you know, been, yeah, I, I always knew that I had guidance and, and support from the other side and that, you know, that and that everything I need is within me and I've, you know, yeah, it's, it's always Do been Do you feel there. comfortable sharing what that is? Yeah. What your background is? Um, so I guess for me, I started getting into, I guess, reading books of, around um, different spiritual um, authors. So the very first one I read was um, Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukav. And then I read Oh, I haven't heard of that. That's a great one. Um, and Conversations with God, um, you know, Neil Donald Walsh. And then Deepak Chopra as well. And so I would have been about 19, you know, when I started mm -hmm. reading those books. I'd gone to a religious school growing up, but I'd never collect connected with religion. Um, Catholic? And no. Um, um, oh, God. What's, what's the other word for it? <laughs> this, is how, this is how disconnected I am from religion. Um, not, not Catholic, the other one. Um, Anglican, there we go. Anglican, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd started reading those books and, and it had kind of just, yeah, just this, this um, these concepts around oneness, you know, and that love, <laughs> you know, is the, the universal language and that we come from love and that we are love and that fear, you know, is what's actually blocking us from experiencing, mm -hmm. you know, love in, in any given moment and that, we don't need to seek anything outside of ourselves to feel whole because we are already whole, but it's our, the blocks that we've placed around our heart, you know, that, that disconnect us. And it's also our attachments, <laughs> you know, that's something I've um, had to learn. You know, I feel like that was part of one of my life lessons that my soul chose for me was to experience what 
it felt like to be attached, you know, to things outside of myself in order to feel okay. And, you know, you do have to hold on to those things for as long as it takes before you then let go of them and then you experience the freedom you've been looking for all along. Um, and, yeah, so I guess for me that having those spiritual beliefs around, you know, angels and um, a higher mm-hmm. power and all of that, it really, um, I guess, had me on good, stood me on good ground when I then entered 12-step recovery, um, which is, again, spiritual-based um, recovery program. And it was all about surrender, you know, and handing it over, handing it over to to a higher power and, um no longer, you know, following my own will and it's sort of, you know, following the will of God and all of those things. And I guess I just felt, yeah, it was an interesting time, you know, getting sober and finding myself in those rooms and realising that I was being thrown into an environment where I was going to have to face my fears head on, which was, you know, essentially speaking. <laughs> like just speaking to people had always been, you know, the thing I hated the most, I was so terrified of. And then I found myself in these big halls with 50 or 60 people, you know, when I was having to say, you know, my story and say what I was struggling with, um, yeah, it cracked me wide open really and it allowed me to let God in, you know, to really let that trust and that faith and that love back into my life because I had been resisting it. As much as I've been using my mind to understand it all, you know, I, I hadn't been really letting it in my heart space because I'd just been in the wounding when was the first time you felt oneness? Because I think when people experience oneness, it's very consistently similar. And it, what, what was it like for you? Because that is a moment. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I, yeah, it's interesting that you've asked me that because I actually feel like it happened before I got sober, but I think I shut it down. I believe that. I believe that. Yeah. I do. Yeah. First time I ever experienced oneness was on LSD. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's it's a great question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ponder that further because I do feel like I would have been a lot younger. Um, I would it would have been around. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember I used to write a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, there were and I found the letters. You know what I mean? I found them, and they would be twenty odd years old now. But the way I was writing. You know, I was like, I read it going, oh, my God, like how how wise is this 19-year-old? Um, but something had happened for me. Something had shifted for me in just in reading those books, you know, and right. like I had found a sense of meaning, you know, and a sense of, oh, my goodness, like this all happened for a reason, you know. It's mm-hmm. like I, I no longer felt disconnected. Um, and I, I guess I, I really took to those concepts around, um, you know, as a soul, we choose our parents and mm-hmm. we choose, you know, the life lessons that we're here to to learn and grow through and evolve through. Um, and I think that period of, of me understanding that was part of my integration of, of recognising the, the oneness, you know, that we're all actually connected. We're not, we're not actually in separation the way the illusion has us believing we are. Um, but yeah, I, I often do think about what would my life have been like if I'd stayed on that course and not mm-hmm. continued the drinking. Um, but I feel like, again, that was my life lesson. Like I was, I needed to mm-hmm. go through the attachment to it. I needed to, to experience it. And I don't believe that there are any wrong moves. You know, I don't believe there are any wrong actions that you can really take. I think that they're mm-hmm. all 
leading us towards where we need to go um, and we're always divinely guided and yeah it's, it doesn't have to be as serious as what we make it out to be either when did you quit drinking uh just over two years ago two and two and a bit years ago yeah and that's when you went to aa or had you gone to aa before that oh look i went for one or two meetings um and then i mm-hmm. returned to drinking um but no this time around um i went and you know it was a huge catalyst for helping me to stay sober um yeah. because i needed to be around other people that had also you know walked that mm-hmm. path because I didn't know anybody other than my brother. I didn't know anybody that was sober. And I thought my life was basically going to end. Like I thought that was just nothing for me left, you know. Um, And those first six months I spent crying and I spent, you know, um, just on the couch basically and going to meetings. Um, And I had to rebuild, you know, I had to rebuild who I thought I was because my whole identity had been wrapped up in that, you know, that version of me. And so it's set me off on a, you know, a deeper healing journey than what I'd gone through previously. Um, mm-hmm. And I found myself sort of following the the path, you know, as the trail kind of leads us. And I ended up in a, a mastermind community um, with a, a man that has like a, a coach that has a pretty large social media following. And um, part of his course was all about just getting on camera and speaking you know, and just sharing into the community, into these live mm-hmm. um, communities and, and talking about, you know, the things you've overcome and talking about yeah. your childhood and the things you missed out on and, you know, doing some inner child and reparenting work and, and those sorts of things. And, yeah, just something kind of came alive in me in that community where I was terrified, you know, jumping on mm-hmm. and doing the, the, the videos. But I just, yeah, I found a part of myself that had been locked away for a long time, you know, and I started realising that the thing I'd been fearing, I didn't need to fear. It was actually the connection. It gave me the connection I'd been looking for all along. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of led me on a course where I've gone and done some further healing work and some of the most profound healing I've done, to be honest, Jonathan, you know, and after the, you know, decades of being focused on the mind um, mm-hmm. has been getting into the body, you know, because... <laughs> I always same with me. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah I'm a mind guy. I grew up this was the place. And I kept trying to drive down through a lot of my life and realize it needs both. It's mm. not that this is wrong. I just need both to yeah. function effectively. Totally. And they're they're a, mm-hmm. they're a system to, that just join together. You know what I mean? They're right. not one and like they're not separate. That they're yes. they're they're one and the same. So yeah, and I, 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 you know, I'd been writing about it um, for years. I'd found in some of my journal entries where I'd say things like, you know, I, I feel like I understand myself so well. You know, I understand where mm-hmm. my origin wounds come from. I understand, you know, why I'm attracted to dangerous men or why I drink the way I do. Like I understood it all, but yet I couldn't stop it. <laughs> I couldn't stop it from happening. And, and, and it was just like, what the hell is going on here? Why is this intelligence not connecting to my actions? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I knew then that there was something missing and I was writing about it and I was saying, I just don't know how to feel. I don't know how to feel. And I think that there's something here for me, but I didn't know what mm-hmm. to do about it. And, um, anyway, I did find myself again, you know, in a, in a following a trail and found myself with a mentor who works holistically, um, and really started recommending daily practices like dance, 
you know, just getting into your body in the morning. Just start with that. Because for me, movement as well had been a struggle in my life um, mm-hmm. because I'd been somebody that had often been in the freeze response. I didn't realise how much my body was really um, triggered, I suppose, by just movement <laughs> and any old movement. It felt like I was, um, you know, being tested and so my comfort zone would kick back in and push me back into freeze. Um Anyway, so I started doing things like dance. I started doing breath work. I started, um, you know, doing a number of other kind of body-based things. But ultimately what it was leading me to was emotional processing, you know, emotional release Mm -hmm. work where I was being invited to come into my body anytime I'd experience a trigger, get underneath where did that trigger, you know, originate from, and then do a timeline you know, to try to trail back, you know, to the to the origin um, memory, and allow myself to visualize what it felt like for me when I was six or seven or whatever it was, having that experience reenacted in my body, and really allow the emotions to come online and to be felt, mm-hmm. so that they can then be flushed through my entire nervous system, and then released, mm-hmm. and. What I've found in that has been some really profound releasing Um, and, you know, just my body, the way it has responded to those things. At first it was difficult because I was so dissociated and I still, you know, needed to, you know, be gentle. Um, But some of the releasing that's happened, you know, like my, I had a lot of tension around my throat for a very long time, you know, and I started realising in some of this releasing work that I needed to sort of, bring it up and speak it out, you know, speak out Mm -hmm. some of the things that were happening when I was younger. And as a result of doing that, I no longer have that tension, you know, and yeah, just some other things, I guess, that my body had been holding on to and had been bracing, you know, I'd I'd braced myself against some of the experiences and I'd frozen Mm -hmm. them in me, you know, they'd frozen and locked down into my shoulders and into parts of my body that, um, yeah, was still holding on to that trauma. And so by releasing those emotions and and also um, connecting into the younger version of myself and reparenting, you know, and giving that younger part of me an opportunity to be heard, but also to rewrite the story, you know, mm-hmm. where I can actually come in and, and actually invite another outcome for how that could have gone differently. And that's been pretty profound as well to help me to sort of, you know, release from the stories. Did you do that work? With mentors, or did you teach, or did you just discover that? Uh, that was, I've been doing that with a mentor, um, mm-hmm. and I guess though, you know, I, I had been doing a lot of that on my own in some way. Not the emotional processing; I hadn't done that. Um, I needed mm-hmm. a mentor for that because, quite frankly, I did not know how to feel, you know. And I was reaching out mm-hmm. to her and saying, "I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, what do you mean, feel your feelings? You know, where are they located? How am I supposed to feel?" Um, right. Yeah, so I really needed guidance around that. and But in terms of the inner child work, I've been doing that sort of stuff myself um, for, a, yeah, quite a number of years. But I think that, yeah, can, coupling it with the emotional processing has been pretty profound for me. And I've just, you know, you know, when we think about energy as well and we think about, um, you know, the scale of consciousness and those lower vibrational emotions, that get locked and trapped into our bodies. And I had so much fear and I had so much um, terror and I had anger and I had um, frustration and I had, you know, doubt and I had all these things like trapped in my body and in my cells 
they were affecting my vibration. You know, they were affecting the, the things I was attracting into my reality. And I, I was attracting, you know, these relationships like dangerous men, if we want to say that, or men that, you know, treated me like crap or whatever. But that was because I was an energetic match to that. You know, I mm-hmm. had that in my cells and in my whole field. And it wasn't that they were the bad guy. It was because I was drawn to it because it was like that's what I, you know, we attract what we are. And so now I'm feeling like there's just this release, you know, there's actually this release of those stored emotions and those lower vibrational experiences that no longer need to, you know, be housed in my body. And that has shifted my whole perception of people and the people that I suppose I'm being attracted to or being attracted to me. It's a very different energy now. And now you help people. Yeah. What do you say to people who want what you have but have never gone through that type of work because that workspace scares the shit out of people when they first think about it. Yeah. But your hindsight, what do you say that's worth it enough for them to say, Oh, that's worth doing. Mm, mm, Great question. I, I think what I probably tend to do is I normalize it. You know, I, I normalize it firstly that, yeah, you know, feeling is scary. You know, and it's, uh, look, to be honest, it's not scary. I actually don't. I think it's it's our resistance to the feeling. You know, it's our resistance to feeling our emotions that that's actually the problem. It's not the emotion. And so I do, as much as I normalise and validate for people that it's okay to feel what you feel, it's also yeah. important that we pull apart, you know, the narrative that the mind is running because that is what is actually keeping you stuck. And so I mm-hmm. guess I just try to explain to people that, you know, this this journey back home to yourself doesn't need to be scary. It doesn't even need to be hard. You know, it's all about the perception that we hold around how we choose to go within. And I guess, yeah, for me, it's, it's again, because I've walked it myself and I embody it, I do feel like it's, um, yeah, something that I invite people to, to seek guidance and seek support from because, then they don't have to feel so alone with it because that's the other thing is I think we've felt so alone and disconnected for so long and thought this is just something I've got to do and figure out by myself. But that's what a mentor and a guide and, you know, a coach is for, is for somebody to, to reach out to and actually ask those questions like I'd been doing with my mentor, like how do I feel? I don't know how to do it. Um, yeah, so I guess but ultimately if, if, if we're looking for freedom, we do have to go within. You know, we do have to take those steps towards, you know, cultivating those experiences for ourselves. But I think what seems to appeal to most people is when they realise their internal reality attracts their external reality, it creates their external reality, it creates, you know, the experiences that they have in their life. And so if they want a different experience, they have to come within, you know, and they have to look at their thoughts, feelings and emotions and the role that those things play on the, you know, um, the way they're interacting in life. And it, I think it's quite empowering for people when they realise that, oh, okay, so I can actually take responsibility for that. I can actually make a difference. I don't have to be a victim, you know, because I think a lot of our conditioning has us believe that life happens to you instead of life happening for you. And and the victim is an easier path. It's a more immature path. It shucks off responsibility. Um, and that's that's a big part of it is, Taking on restoring your heart is a responsibility because it's owning yourself. It's saying, okay, I'm my only hero. I'm the only one who's really going to save me because we all know you, nobody else is going to save you. They may rescue you and give you lots of money, but that's different. Mm-hmm. Healing you and truly 
restoring you, that requires you taking responsibility. And that's hard for people. It is. You know, it 100% people is. struggle with that. They do. They do. And it, you know, it, it makes me reflect on that, that night before my very last drink when, um, when I was having that thought and the thought, the thought dawned on me, <laughs> no one's coming to save me, you know, and it was like, wow, like how did it, how did it take me to the age of 39 to figure that mm-hmm. out? <laughs> you know what I mean? And particularly growing up. Better late than never. Yeah. 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 But particularly growing up in the environment I did, it was like, why did I have that perception that that was ever going to happen anyway? You know what I mean? But it's like you kind of attach to that victim story because it's easier that way, isn't it? And, and yeah, and I, I, I think I'd, I'd, up until that point had been, I'd bought into the illusion that once you get married or you, you meet a partner, things will, ch- things will change, you know, like life will be easy, life will be great. You know, it was like that whole story of get married, have kids, buy a house, you know, all those things. But I, we call yeah. that the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> That's why this podcast is called Living in the Matrix. And it's hard for people to break out of that. It's yeah. easier to let someone think for you. It yeah, is. true, true. It is, it is. But it, yeah, I guess um, I, I, I never felt like those things were for me. Do you know what I mean? Like I was never um, mm-hmm. drawn towards marriage, but I did feel a sense of, oh, I need a partner. Because if I have mm-hmm. a partner, then I'll be okay somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I guess, you know, what had dawned on me that night was, yeah, no one's coming to save you. You've got to do this yourself. And, and that's when the voice came in and said, you're not alone. You've never been alone. And, mm-hmm. and it's like that's what it took for me, I guess, was to know that, okay, it is up to me, but I've got support, you know. It's just not support that I, I've been looking for it outside of myself. But the support that I needed was within me all along. You know, so it was like, oh, okay. Like now I get it. <laughs> I can just take my hands off the wheel and just come within and, yeah, this is how I can actually make a difference and, and change the course of my life. But I could only do it one day at a time, obviously. That's all I had capacity for at that point. What did freedom feel like for you? You, you talked about your head person trying mm. to feel. Freedom is a feeling. It's oneness is that that deep sense of freedom of grace to say you're good. Mm. What did it feel like to feel that? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how to, how to find words to describe the describe freedom. Really, um, feelings are hard to describe. They are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you know, for me, it, it's it's that sense of it's like it, it's opened up a sense of awe and wonder. Mm-hmm. into my life yeah. you know yeah. um where like truly like i can see the colors in the leaves i can see the colors in the sky i can see the colors of birds i couldn't see those things before you know i i saw the trees i saw i saw the sky but i never saw the colors of them and so now it's like and that just keeps getting sharper if that makes mm-hmm. sense like it's yes. like I, I keep feeling more and more in the world rather than attached, you know, to the world. Or I'm ruled just, by the world. Yeah, yeah. ruled by we, the world, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, where you just sort of, yeah, starting to feel like there's a, well, you know, I've known that, but there's a, there's a bigger storyline at play. But I, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't need to take things so seriously as well. Like that's the other mm-hmm. thing. I think for so long I took it so seriously, like I had to figure it all out and I had to get to here and I had to do this. And um, 
I do think this next, next chapter of my life is about much more getting into my feminine energy, getting because I was very much in my masculine, you know, all about mm-hmm. protection and control and safety and strategy and all of that. And that served a purpose, but it's time to, you know, integrate and and enliven, you know, my natural essence. And for me, that is creativity and it's freedom and it's flow mm. and it's just moving through life, you know, whether it's messy, whether it's uncomfortable, whether it's joyful, whether it's scary, whether it's hard, whatever it is, it's just being with that, you know, rather than resisting against that and saying that's not for me, I don't wish to experience that today. You know, I, I don't take that approach anymore. I, I let life come at me now and it can feel tough some days, you know, like I've been through a pretty mm-hmm. uh, big um, emotional process this week where I've just felt like I don't even know what this is, but clearly it's up-leveling me, you know, like that's what I try to see it as these days is like I'm going through another, you know, rebirthing exercise and it's painful at times, um, but it's required, you know, it's required of me to keep leveling up and to keep, seeing what's possible for me rather than letting you know fear shut me down and keep me playing small so yeah that's freedom in a nutshell (laughs) that's it's a good way of describing it because it's we had a, a neuroscientist dr chris lee on our episode last week and he talked about that is that moment when we let go of a lot of that trauma and negative energy we suddenly realize we have enough energy to manage the present moment emotionally mm. because we're not carrying so much of our energy focused on all that crap that we're storing that our body's trying to tell us to let go. And when yeah. you get rid of that, it creates a much starker awareness. You talked about like just knowing. I think that's because we have clarity from the lack of negative energy. Absolutely. And I'm- it's... Yeah, and and it's getting to that place comes from that work. It does. So. It does. I totally agree. And I think it's, yeah, when we work with the emotions, you know, to free up the stored emotions from our body, which causes yeah. a sense of dysregulation in the first place, which then leads to an overactive mind, which has us then creating stories of separation and fear. You know, if we really start working with releasing, yeah, like you say, and just letting go, like it's truly like that is what we're here for is just to let go. You know, like, what can I let go of today? What can I let go of this morning? And that's really what I ask myself in the mornings. What can I let go of today? Even before I started my day. Um, <laughs> because it's like, you know, otherwise I'm I'm holding on thinking I've got to control things. And then where's the joy in that, you know? How is, how is gratitude play into your recovery and growth? It's not all recovery. I think I learned we move past recovery and into growth. It's a great place. So where is that in your journey? Mm. Yeah, it certainly was something that was introduced more heavily into my day through recovery, like through being in, in, in recovery. I think for me, I, I what I most enjoy about um, my gratitude practice is I use it as, as a, a form of meditation. So I actually mm. close down my eyes and I feel into, you know, the experience of, of I start with what I'm um, in terms of the beings in my life that I'm most grateful for. It always starts with my dogs. Sorry, mum and dad, my brother, but my dogs come first. Um, and then I move to to the people, you know, the people in my life that I'm exceptionally grat- I'm grateful for. And I really feel it, you know, like I bring that feeling of love and gratitude online mm. and then I move it out further to, you know, the, the other things in my reality that I'm grateful for. Um, 
and yeah, so for me, it's it's something that I do. But I've also now what I do is incorporate the future vision. You know, so I'm grad, I'm grateful for the things that have not yet occurred or come into my existence, mm-hmm. but I feel into that as well. And it's like this excitement, you know, I feel it all through my body, you know, and that's, what, again, one of the joys of now being able to feel is I can feel like sensations in my arms. I can feel like, right. you know, my heart beating and I'm like, oh, I'm excited about that thing that's going to happen in the future um, because that's how we actually create our, our future is we, we focus on it, you know, we bring it yeah. into our existence, into, into our internal experience. And that's how we let go of the past, you know, by creating that vision for the future and really stepping into it each and every day. And I have another practice of um, reading out a divine vision statement that I read in the mornings as well, which, again, is future-focused. Uh, well, it's, it's about the present tense. Like I speak in the present tense, but it's about things that haven't yet come into my reality. Right. Yeah, um, bringing the future to the present time. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I do those things as well. But, again, it's coming from that energy of gratitude. And, mm. yeah, it's other things I, I do. But when I start my prayer, I always start with thank you as well. You know, I think when we're communicating with the angels and with with um, with the universe, we can um, you know start with gratitude because that's actually their language, you know, and that's how that how we come into contact with what's around us is to actually give thanks to it rather than um, coming from a place of lack as well. So I think that's mm-hmm. what we can often fall into is we wait to use prayer until we're struggling, you know, and we wait to kind of until we're at rock bottom, and then we say, please help me. Um, and it's like, well, it doesn't need to be like that. You know, we can actually give gratitude and thanks each and every day, you know, just by starting our day by saying thank you for all the blessings. You know, thank you for this abundant life that I have every single day. Thank you for the joy, you know, that I've experienced yesterday, today and tomorrow. Um, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your generosity. And, yeah, I I do do that. Yeah. I think gratitude is like starting your day with the really good things that are happening. It doesn't mean the bad things aren't going to happen or aren't happening. It's you're just choosing to focus on the really good ones because it centers you and it releases serotonin. I mean, there's so many good reasons that are very positive for your body. And what most people do is they wake up and go, today is going to suck. And they don't realize they're scripting their body. So how, how have these practices shifted you? And have people noticed? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, just the very fact that I'm on social media is like ridiculous to some of my friends. They're like, not ridiculous, but like in the sense of they're like, who are you? You know, who have you become? Um, because I was just What that, were they that, used to? Who was the old Catherine for that? Um, well, the, firstly, I was the drunk, but but when I, 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 I just would never post anything on social media. Like that was just not me. I, I didn't want to be scrutinized or seen or judged or any of those things. And so I just kind of was more of a behind the scenes person. I also never liked my photo being taken. Like I was very much like, please get that camera out of my face. Um, and so the fact that I'm doing reels and that I'm taking selfies and all this stuff, it's like, what the hell? Um, but I guess it's, it's again, it's that representation of me, like letting go of the ego, you know, letting go of this whole, you know, mask that I had been wearing just as a survival strategy mm-hmm. and really stepping into all parts of who I have always been but had been denying and repressing. And so I guess, yeah, people see a huge difference in me just for having done those things and continuing to do those things. Um, I think, you know, yeah, about my daily practices and I I don't know, to be honest, whether I think it all adds up. Do you know what I mean? Like I think it's all part of the, um, 
the process of growth and evolution. But for me, it's about connecting, you know, connecting to others and really sharing my experiences. And, you know, AA gave me that. It really gave me that doorway in to actually letting myself be seen. And I think that's been where some of the biggest growth occurred and then, you know, further growth since sort of doing this emotional release work. And, yeah, and I do see some ripple effects as well with my family and um, some things that are happening there where, um, yeah, my parents are coming to me for advice around how to manage their emotions, Um, you know, and I'm giving them strategies and they're like, well, okay, and my dad's meditating. You know, he's meditated for the first time in his 77 years on this earth and, um there's, there's things that, that get to happen, you know, when we make the shift and we don't force it on other people, but they just naturally become inquisitive. Like, wow, you don't seem as angry anymore or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it used to be. Because like I used to, you know, have things with my mother where she might say something and I just, I just wouldn't be nice. Like I was, you know, nasty. Um, whereas now I just accept her, you know. That's been one of the biggest um spiritual tools you know that's that's been life-changing for me is just acceptance you know accept life on life's terms don't feel and like it's I'm not as there. bad it's not as bad as everybody thinks it is acceptance doesn't mean like most people don't experience their worst day every day they experience no. a very average day that is mundane and it's like if you stop in the mundane and look for what's really good you transform it into good it's like Focus on the good and it radically changes everything. Yes, 100%. Yeah. And I think, yeah, for me, it was, again, just that whole resistance of life, though. You know, it was like if, if someone yeah. behaved a certain way, I would personalise it and make it about me and make it sort of like, well, why did she do that or why did he do that and why didn't they do it this way? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, why don't we just accept it? <laughs> how about we do that? <laughs> you know, how about we let's just move accept on. it? Yeah, let's yeah. Just let's just move on. Yeah. Then we don't need to make a story up about it, you know? Um, because, and also it's like that addiction to chaos and addiction to drama and addiction to kind of feeling something, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like, we're also shut down and we, we kind of need that, um, you know, it's all subconscious, but we need that way of actually feeling alive. It's like, well, if I can judge you for five minutes, then I've got my hit for the day, you know? Whereas now it's like, if I, if I feel myself ever judging somebody, I'm like, wow, that's interesting. What's going on for me? Where am I out of alignment with my, my the truth of who I am? Mm-hmm. Because me judging somebody else has got nothing to do with them. It's always about me. And so, you know, all of those things now, I just look at everything from a very different lens. I no longer look outside of myself for the answers. And I no longer, you know, why, why so am you're, I judging? you're coaching people now. And mm. first, what was it like to sort of begin to help people? You may have been doing it for a long time. So tell me when that started. But what does it mean to you now? Because you have you're on Instagram and your reels are phenomenally produced. So you're very comfortable in front of the camera. So that's a progression, but what are you doing now to help people through that process? Cause you're, you're fantastic. Your content is amazing. Mm, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. And um, yeah, look, to be really honest with you, there's a lot of um, self doubt still, you know, about my, my social media. It doesn't show. Of- yeah, that's the mask. I perfected the mask very young. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess, so, sorry, so what, what did you ask me about? So what, what am I doing with clients? So in terms of. Yeah, so how are you helping people go through that same journey? Because I know a lot of your content is focused on helping people as a coach. Hmm. What does that work look like for you? 
Yeah, yeah. So I guess, yeah, it definitely has been a transition to start working for myself because the previous work I'd been doing was, you know, um, working for non-government organisations with, you know, funding agreements and um, certain ways of working, I guess, that were very much, you know, uh, regulated and um, I wouldn't say surface level. It wasn't surface level work, but it was... um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've managed children's mental health services and I've managed, um, you know, family support programs and things like that where so people that might have been struggling with things like drug and alcohol addiction or um, financial hardship or, you know, domestic and family violence, things like that. But often they were coming in in a crisis and they were coming in mm-hmm. um, either because they were mandated to come in or because there were other um, things that brought them in there and perhaps they weren't always as... Um, willing I guess at that time to really you know work on anything deeper um but essentially the transition I've made now to start working for myself has been born out of this desire to really be in my authenticity because Mm. what I did find you know in my um other work is that yes I was wearing a mask for a long time because I didn't ever reveal about you know what I've been doing behind the scenes um but also I just I just started feeling not so much aligned with that type of work I wanted to go deeper myself and so since you know stepping into my own healing journey in this way and working more with emotions in particular I have now become yeah really passionate about sharing that you know sharing those tools so that people can see that there is freedom from things like addiction you know and I think um only up until recently I still believed that you would be addicted like you'll always be addicted to something you know and that you'll always have that that wound and now I actually believe very differently. I believe we can heal. You know, I believe we actually can. And not everybody mm-hmm. believes that. You know, the system and the medical model yep. would not have you believe that. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, I really wanted the freedom that came with actually just standing in my own energy and saying this is what I believe to be true and not having to sort of think about, well, how does my organisation I work for sit with that, you know, and it's just like, no, I'm mm-hmm. going to do what, what I know has worked for me And I'm going to share the tools and the information that I have garnered along the way and that I embody, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I'm going to share from that space. And people are being drawn to that, you know, they're drawn to, I guess, that level of authenticity and that level of this is part of my story. You know, addiction is something I've I've navigated. Um, And I I do believe, you know, we all connect on that that human level. You know, we just want to know Mm -hmm. who are you, where have you come from, what have you done? Um, because you can you can work with any coach, can't you? You know what I mean? But you really want to know, well, who are you underneath that? Who are you underneath your accreditation or your, you know, your qualification or whatever? Um, and so yeah, so for me now I work with clients on, you know, the emotional level, the behavioral level, the mindset level, and the spiritual level. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of domains that we focus on. And I have an approach, I guess, where I work with them um I have a voice noting app where people can actually reach out, you know, every day if they need to. And so it's a bit of a different model, you know, um, because typically when you think about counselling, you might have a session once every fortnight and Mm -hmm. you kind of hold on to things in between then and then you come (laughs) and you and then meanwhile things are blowing up all around you and then you come into the session and you're like, well, I haven't really got anything to talk about today, you know. So, yeah, Um, whereas what I find is, is much more impactful is let's break it down in real time you know, and so people will jump in with a trigger. As it's happening. Yeah. And that probably gives people a, a real-world scenario to talk about. Like she said this, well, he said this kind of thing, and it's real. The emotions are there because you need the emotions to kind of unpack it a little bit. You do, 100%. And you that's know? one of the 
the joys of it, which I've always loved. It's always been, I think, one of my um, skills, I guess, one of my, my, my gifts is I can see things that other people don't always see and mm-hmm. can really help them see their blind spots and, and also can identify the pattern, you know, and really help people to take responsibility for themselves so that they're not projecting onto the external world and projecting onto their partners and onto their, their loved ones. Um, and then I can also guide them in real time in how to process those emotions and also to kind of go back into their, their childhood and help them with the reparenting and the inner child work as well, which I think is really powerful, you know, very, very powerful for people uh, when they can start connecting into their younger self and start to recreate some of those memories and start to release some of those traumas. That's been, um, you know, it's been a real joy, I think, in my work now to be able to do that and to be able to sort of really be in this embodied space where I'm just, I am who I am. I don't have to hide anything. I just, you know, I just show up as, yeah, as as I am. And it's, um, yeah, that's the freedom as well that I've been looking for because I've been so kind of stitched up in some ways around not wanting people to see the real me, but I no longer have those fears anymore around, oh, what if they reject me? It's like I don't, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that story. And and if if a person doesn't want to work with me, for instance, if I still had a rejection wound, I'd take that deeply personally. Mm-hmm. But now I don't. You know, I see that as it's just energy. You know, if your energy doesn't align with mine, that's okay. It's right. got nothing to do yeah. with me, and it's not mm-hmm. a reflection on on you either. It's just we're just not aligned. Great, but someone else <laughs> is. You know, and, and I'd rather know that, wouldn't you? Like we'd rather know those things. Oh yeah then try and force something and go, well, why don't you want to work with me? I want you to tell me why. You know, like, no, we don't need to do that. So, um, yeah, but certainly, you know, the social media stuff's been big for me. It's still a learning um, environment. I'm still, I still have, you know, um, struggles with doing reels and being on camera and all of that. It's, it's just going to be a journey, you know, but I know where I'm headed and I know that there's going to be a book one day and I know I'm going to be on stages and I know all these things and it's not because I necessarily deeply desire it in my, um, like, how do I explain that? Like, it's like my ego is terrified, you know, absolutely terrified of those mm-hmm. things. But there's a soul, like the soul essence of me is like, that's what we're doing. I hope you get ready for these things because that's what we're doing. And I'm yeah. like, really, are we? Um, and that's why I keep showing up, you know, I keep showing up even in the fear, you know, even in the moments when I'm like, fuck, mm-hmm. I don't want to do another reel. I just don't want to be on camera. I'm like, you can do this, Catherine. You can do this. I always tell people that I work with that if you, if it doesn't require courage, it's probably not worth doing. You you got to put, take yourself out of that comfort zone in order to get out of your ego. It really is because ego hates certainty or uncertainty. Totally, totally. I know. But it's been the most amazing growth, isn't it? And you do, you're doing reels as well. I love your reels. So I have a very similar journey. Like I still struggle. I, if I turn on my camera, my yep. mind shuts off. Totally. Yes. I like, I have yes. this thought out reel in my head. I'm ready to record. And then, and I yes. just completely blank. So That's I am it. learning too. It has been a wonderful journey of learning to listen to, uh, cause I record what I learn when I walk with my dog. Uh-huh. That's kind of my meditation time. And capturing it has been very cathartic for me mm, mm. has it been for you because you're kind of you're presenting your thought process and then you listen to them again and it's like this very wow i'm learning i'm growing yeah. and it's a, yeah. it, it, that's what i love about it is yeah. to, to see my own journey publicly that i and i you know so 
how has that been for you? Kind of, how do you deal with those doubts? Mm, uh, look, I mean, when I first started in that other, that container with the coach that I was working with and I started doing videos there, I would absolutely agree with you that that was quite a cathartic experience where I would watch it back and go, wow, like mm-hmm. what are those profound, you know, downloads that that girl is talking about? Um, and I, yeah, had a lot of growth and, and sort of self-awareness that was kind of landing through through those videos. Um, <clears throat> but when it came to social media and, it, yeah, that was a whole different ball ballgame. Um, and at times I have I found myself recording and re-recording reels like a number of times. I think there was one reel that I recorded, I'd say maybe um, 30 times. You know, and that's a lot. Like it's a, it's a, it's quite a taxing um, experience, I think, to kind of put yourself through that. And what I was learning about myself in that is that 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 need for perfection, you know, that really deep drive that I had at the time for this has to be perfect because if it's not perfect, you're not good enough. And I, that's you know a part of my psyche. There's a voice in my head that berates mm. me and tells me that's not good enough. And so what I've had to, you know, go through in, in this journey of just putting things out there that I may still, like the part of me may still not think it's good enough, I have to actually be okay with that, you know, and allow my body to actually just sit with the feeling of discomfort and like validate that part of me, actually provide compassion to that part of me who just wants to actually protect mm-hmm. me, protect me from the fear of judgment and rejection. And so rather than me going, oh, God, this is so hard, I don't want to do this, this is awful, I'm going to give up, I have to actually say, I hear you. You know, I hear, I hear that, that you're trying to protect me, but this is what we're doing and this is actually okay. You know, what we've put out today is enough because I am enough, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been doing that real time, you know, reparenting through the process. So for me it's, it's been healing in those ways, um, you know, just to say it's, it's, it's okay, you know. Um, because that, that part of me, yeah, she would much rather that we just don't, don't do this stuff, you know, cause it's way too risky. It's way too risky. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, well, we're, we're doing it. So, <laughs> let's so what did you learn for our listeners? What did you learn on the other side of that fear? Because I think that's the journey of every human being is to overcome your base fears of mm. who am I? Am I valuable? Do I have meaning and purpose? Yeah, I mean, I think what what I'm learning is is a I can do it, like I can I can do hard things. Um, but b what what I try to keep anchoring in with this is it's not about me, you know. Um, like the message is not about me, and if I can get off my own case, you know, get out of the ego, and actually ground myself in the message, that's when I actually find the freedom. And that's when I go, okay, and I actually do visualise. Like I, I'll just visualise a whole um, like arena of light, like little lights on different on, on people's heads basically, and I visualise my message landing on one of those little lights. You know, it could, it could be an arena of thousands of people, but if something I said has landed on one little little light, mm-hmm. that's enough. My, my work there is done, you know, for that particular post, that's it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not looking to, you know, create. You don't have to change the world, even no. though love changes the world. You know? It does. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. But it's like really in does. those moments, I do believe, and I do get, you know, people reaching out and saying kind things to me and, and they you know, it comes at the most 
opportune times when I'm having a hard moment and someone from Vancouver will reach out and say, you know, my husband and, and I listen to your posts every morning and you're changing our life. Thank you so much. And I'm like, what the yeah. hell? You know, and because you just get so consumed in your head, don't you? Where well, I do, where I, I where I can, at times can think, oh, it's not good enough. You know, it's like, hold on, right? Like, who are you to say that you're not good enough? Because actually, <laughs> you know, actually, we're all good enough, and you're blocking. You know, you're blocking the message. So get out of your own way, so that love can get to work. You know, and yeah. the beauty of it is that when you get to that space. You realize I when you don't when you get over the ego you don't have to worry about yourself so you don't have to live in the chaos and the drama like mm. it becomes antithetical you're like no and then you get to use your gifts to help other people yeah. it just becomes a natural progression and then you feel like wow my life is contributing something and I think that's what everybody wants what you're doing is helping people do that mm. so I love that and what would you say to someone who is um, a similar story to yours mm. on how to begin. Mm. Well, I would say to reach out, you know, that would be my first thing is to, to actually people, you know, we, we suffer in silence, you know, that's our mm -hmm. biggest problem is that we do disconnect, you know, from the help that is available to us. But I guess I would say that there is healing, you know, there is healing and there is hope for everybody, no matter your story, no matter your experience, no matter what you've lived through, there is a way out of that, you know, and I think also self-compassion, you know, like that is the antidote I find to our greatest healing is to actually just start being kind to ourselves instead of beating ourselves yeah. up and saying, oh, I'm not good enough or I'm, you know, not going to be able to change or I keep relapsing or I keep going back to, you know, those un un unhealthy relationships or whatever it might be. It's like that perpetuates the story, you know, by being hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. If we can actually just bring some kindness and some self-compassion towards the, the issue, we are then in a better position to actually accept help when it's available to us because it is. Um, yeah, so I guess that's you know simplified way of, of sort of explaining mm -hmm. what i would say to somebody um but as i you know sort of said already is that healing is possible and yeah for many years i didn't believe it was possible for me and i didn't believe that um a life without alcohol was worth living i thought it would be you know the end but it was the beginning you know and we never really know we don't know what is coming for us um but we actually just need to be able to you know be open enough to see and allow things into our reality instead of blocking and resisting against them because of fear. Do you still have a relationship with alcohol? Do you still drink? Or have you just said for right now, I'm done, no, I don't want no, anymore? No, I, I don't drink. And, you know, I, I have no desire to ever drink again. Um, it's not mm -hmm. part of my my um, intention for myself um, because, yeah, it's, a, it's an active choice. You know, it's a choice I've made. Um, I think some people that I've come across in recovery don't drink because they're afraid of what will happen if they do. Um, I no longer live in fear, you know, thankfully. The desire to drink has been removed. I think that's the key. Yeah, yeah, that's the key is don't be afraid of it. Yes. Yeah, totally. Then you can manage the emotion around it and deal with it if it's in the room. You're like, no, yeah, I, sure. I don't really need a drink. Yeah. No, exactly. And for me, the, the desire, thankfully, it was like, again, a divine intervention, got removed within the first three weeks. I, I've just that's never, awesome. I know, I know. And I was like, what on earth is happening here? 
And, you know, and I have had a couple of things happen where I've gone back to the thought, you know, the thought has said you could have a drink right now. The drink might change this feeling for you right now. Um, But because I'm so self-aware, I was able to play it forward and say, yes, okay, if I did take the drink, if I did take the drug, where will I end up tomorrow? And that's not going to be pretty, you know, and I don't desire that for myself. So in those moments, I do other things. And now it's like I go and release my emotion. (laughs) I go and actually have a cry or scream or shake my body or do whatever it is I need to do in that moment to not buy into the story that the only way out is alcohol. Um, And that's the thing I think is that a lot of us, we just need to understand how to work with the subconscious mind. You know, we need to understand that we've got these, this, this part of ourselves that is going to have us go back to our old patterns. It's going to pull us back to the past whenever we are Mm -hmm. uncomfortable or we're in, you know, fear or we've got an emotional reaction. And it's in those moments that we then need to intervene and rewire, you know, our patterns so that we're not just going back onto autopilot. And so I think, again, for people to recognise that that's what we need to do and that that's entirely possible. You know, it is entirely possible and it's, it happens every day, you know, and I'm living proof of it. My brother is living proof of it. All the thousands of other, you know, sober alcoholics and drug addicts out there who haven't had a drug or a drink today, it's so, you know, possible to rewire your subconscious mind and to, you know, choose differently in life and to start to enjoy life, you know, and to have that emotional sobriety that, that we all talk about, you know, because that's the end goal really is to be able to be in your body and to be present to your emotions and to not need to run and escape away from them. That, that I think that's what everybody is looking for is how do I stop running and escaping from what I fear and what is painful. Mm, totally. it's, but it's a wife, it's a life worth living. Catherine, you have been a phenomenal guest. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Your story is amazing. And I love how it's ended because it's ending with the beginning of this beautiful life in front of you. So I absolutely wish you the best. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation and I appreciate you reaching out to me as well. Thank you. Absolutely. So to all the listeners, uh, much love, everyone. Have a great week. We will see you next week. This has been Living in the Matrix.